0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Historian Gregory Prince, in his biography Leonard Arrington and the Writing of Mormon History, tells the story of a key figure in the modern history of Mormonism. Leonard Arrington, a gregarious and generous history entrepreneur, used his success to advance the careers of many others, played a key role in the intellectual development of Mormonism by broadening Mormons' understanding of themselves. Leonard Arrington, author of Great Basin Kingdom, a book many saw as the most important uh, in the important history of Mormonism, became the principal driver of a dramatic turn toward scholarly truth in the study of Mormon history. And Gregory Prince is the winner of the latest Evans Biography Award. That award administered by the Utah State University Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, a program and research area in USU's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. We'll talk about issues in the study, of the history of Mormonism. We'll also talk about some issues raised by uh, Gregory Prince in his recent talk in Salt Lake City titled Science versus Dogma, Biology Challenges the LDS Paradigm. Here's my recent conversation with historian Gregory Prince. So congratulations on winning the uh, Evans Biography Award. You previously won the Handcart Prize for your biography of David O. McKay.
1: Yes, yes. Ten years of hard
0: labor for each. Right. (laughs) Now understand this biography of Leonard Arrington, Uh, this came about uh, upon an invitation from his children.
1: It did, and it was directly linked to the McKay biography. I was asked to speak at the Logan Tabernacle shortly after the McKay biography came out. And after the lecture, a woman came up to me. I didn't know her. She introduced herself. She says, I'm Susan Arrington Madsen. And she asked if I was going back to Salt Lake that night or if I might be available to meet her for breakfast the following morning. And I said, I'm staying overnight, so I'd be happy to. We spent about three hours at breakfast. And during that time, she said, my brothers and I are both very pleased with the McKay biography. Would you consider writing our father's biography? Well, it's a great honor. It, it was a yeah. tremendous honor. Uh, if I were asked to choose two favorite figures within Mormonism of the 20th century, it would be the two whose biographies I wound up writing. Leonard Arrington differed from President McKay in that I had never met President McKay, but I met Leonard on several occasions, and I was in Brazil on a Mormon mission with one of his sons. So I didn't have an intimate friendship with him, but I had enough of a relationship that I revered the man while he was alive.
0: Hmm. What was it uh, did they tell you about the McKay biography that uh, led them to believe this would be a good biographer for our father?
1: I think that they appreciated both the depth of documentation and the honesty. Mm -hmm. And from the outset, they made it clear that's what they wanted for their father's biography. They never tried to interfere. When I produced the final manuscript, I gave it to the three children And they certainly would have been welcome to make any suggestions. Uh, They were fine with it the way that it was. They didn't make a single change in it.
0: I want to have you talk a little bit um, uh, about—let me just read this. This is the the, the introductory materials here. Leonard Arrington, author of Great Basin Kingdom, a book many saw as the most important history of Mormonism, became the principal driver of a dramatic turn towards scholarly truth in the study of Mormon history— His approach gained a temporary foothold in the governing bureaucracy of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when he became church historian. So his approach, how would you characterize his approach? His approach
1: was not unique, but he certainly was first among equals in taking this approach to the writing of Mormon history, and that was that it be data-based, not dogma-based. Beginning with the founding of the church in the early 1800s, the literature that emerged was almost universally polemical. Either it was Mormons determined to prove that this was the one and only true church on the face of the earth, or ex-Mormons or non-Mormons trying to prove the opposite. And there was very, very little that tried to occupy the middle ground. Now, historiography at that time tended to be polarized anyway, so this wasn't unexpected. As we moved into really the middle of the 20th century, you had the emergence of database historiography. And certainly Leonard was part of that, but he wasn't the only one, and he wasn't the first. What he was able to do, though, because of his selection as the LDS Church historian, was to give it a profile that it had not
0: had previously. Um quoting here from uh, Philip Barlow, who holds the Arrington chair at uh, Utah State University. Um, he says, uh, let's see, get this. He said of Arrington, Arrington changed the very nature of studying Mormonism and thus of how informed people are able to approach this fascinating, complex, and important movement. That's Philip Barlow.
1: Yes, the change was not that he rearranged the rules for writing history. It's that as one who was trained in that discipline, he became really its principal disciple. Hmm. He was the one who took the message out there. One of the people that I interviewed for the Arrington biography was Howard Lamar, who at one time was the president of Yale University and a very prominent scholar of Western Americana. And what he told me was that Leonard almost single-handedly brought Mormon history into respectability within the academy. Mm -hmm. In part because of his own work with Great Basin Kingdom, but also in part because on a personal level he was such an affable uh, um, ambassador of the message, that people immediately liked Leonard, and if they liked him, they were more willing to listen to what he said.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Also important is mentorship. Scores of historians say they were mentored by him.
1: Yes, I think that that's his most durable legacy. Certainly, Great Basin Kingdom will endure as one of the classics of Mormon history. If you look at the occasional list that people will come up with of the top ten uh, books ever published in Mormon history. It's always on there. His other books have faded in significance over the years. What has not faded a bit is the effect not only of his personal mentorship, but he created an atmosphere that ripples out to the present day, that welcomes people into the discipline and that doesn't require any formal credentials for them to come in the door. Mm. That is extraordinary, if not unique, within professional circles.
0: Amateur historians.
1: Amateur historians. He often called them history buffs. I'm one of them. Right. I was trained in dentistry and pathology. History was my least favorite subject in high school. My second least favorite was English, so go
0: figure Mm. (laughs) <laughs> now, you're, now you're employing both. Uh, so how did that happen, parenthetically? You, you trained in, uh, in dentistry and pathology, had a career there. Uh, Advocation in history, how did that avocation come about?
1: I think that it really began at a time and under circumstances that I didn't appreciate. And that was that uh, although I was raised in Southern California, my family had been in St. George since the Civil War, since St. George was settled. And so when I was deciding where to go to college, there was really only one name on the list, and that was Dixie Junior College, Mm. because my father had gone there, a brother had gone there, my grandparents had gone there. It was the best educational experience of my life. Our next-door neighbor was Juanita Brooks. Oh, interesting. Her husband, Will Brooks, then in his late 80s, was our home teacher. Wow. But I knew nothing of history All I knew was this was a gracious couple, and while I was in the middle of my pre-dental curriculum, Juanita reached out to the biology department and said, one of our Dixie alumni, Jay Segmiller, who was a distinguished scientist and a member of the National Academy of Sciences, was going to be in town, and she said, I'd like the biology students to come over for dinner and meet this scientist. Well, the college was small enough that you could put the whole biology department in her living room without any problem. And that really created a deep imprint in me that this woman, even though I didn't understand the dimensions of Mormon history that she was involved in, certainly stood out as a marvelous person with a very bright intellect. It wasn't until later that I began to realize how pivotal her role was in Mormon history. When my wife and I moved from Los Angeles to Maryland for a fellowship at the National Institutes of Health in 1975, we visited Juanita in her home. And that's when I really started to grasp what the significance was. And even though she was in declining health, she retold us the story of her being a young woman and being summoned to the deathbed of Nephi Johnson and hearing him talk about blood and then dying. And it was then that she first heard about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, even though she'd grown up in southern Utah. Mm -hmm. But that gradual realization that Mormon history was something of interest to me, I can't pinpoint to a particular date, but by the time I was in graduate school at UCLA, I was at least curious enough about it That I wanted to go over to the Huntington Library, which was an hour's drive from where I was living, and just look at their Mormon material. I found out that the manuscript passed to the Huntington Library was like a Willy Wonka golden ticket. Hmm. But I thought, well, I don't have academic credentials. I had a DDS, but I didn't have any academic degree. So I sent a letter to Salt Lake City. This was in, I think, 1973, So it was shortly after Leonard became the church historian. And I just said, look, I want to do some looking around there because I'm interested in a particular topic. Is there a chance that you could just write a letter on my behalf? And within weeks of that, I got a letter from the Huntington Library with a manuscript pass with my name on it because Leonard had intervened. I'd never met Leonard at that point. That was, I think, typical, and I found out later It wasn't unusual, because he would do that for virtually anybody who showed up on his doorstep and expressed an interest in Mormon history. Hmm. It was just extraordinary and probably unique. Yeah.
0: You have a uh, quotation at the beginning of the book, um, or a dedication. This book is dedicated to all who believe that truth has got to be preserved, even inconvenient truth. Interesting through line, Juanita Brooks, uh, Leonard Arrington, uh, everything that happened, you have uh, September sixth in your book, um, mm-hmm. uh, this continual battle. I'm sure not not only in the LDS Church but other other faiths. Um, church leaders are in the business of uh, preserving and strengthening, as they see it, faith. Historians uh, want to want to follow the truth. Professional historians, anyway, want to follow the truth, even though some of those truths unearthed might um, shed a less than flattering light on the institution. And uh, that's that's a tension all the way through. Uh, that, that Arrington himself yes, and, and many associated with him um, had to deal with. Yes. Um, my stake
1: in this really began with my career in science, and that career began in 1971. So I'm approaching 50 years in that career. And because I was an experimental biologist, I had to learn how to rely on data to have confidence in where the data took me. And I saw early on, because of the project that I was involved in, which was with a virus that's the most important cause of infant pneumonia in the world, that a clinical trial of a candidate vaccine had backfired and had killed a couple of infants. That's why I got into that business to try to figure out why this had happened. But I gradually saw, in interviewing some of the people who were involved in that, that there were danger signs. There were data points. And they chose to ignore those because they were inconvenient. And as a result, some infants died and other infants and children had some rather severe damage done to them because this vaccine backfired and their disease was worse than those who had not received the vaccine. That was a very, very powerful lesson in a scientific arena that if the data are legitimate, and that always is something you have to be concerned about, if you ignore those data, you do so at your peril. And sometimes that peril can even involve human life. Well, if you move it over into a religious venue, Ignoring valid data can be as dangerous to spiritual life as ignoring the data about that vaccine was to physical life.
0: You're listening to I'm Tom, Tom Williams, and we're talking with historian Gregory Prince. His latest book is Leonard Arrington and the Writing of Mormon History. Uh, and this biography is the winner of the latest Evans Biography Award from Utah State University. Coming up in the next uh, part of our conversation with Gregory Prince, we'll be talking about uh, Leonard Arrington's time as a Mormon church historian, uh, official church historian. Later in the program, we'll talk uh, about issues in a recent talk that Gregory Prince gave, Science versus Dogma, Biology Challenges the LDS Paradigm. More following this break.
1: On the next radio lab.
0: He died in Ross's arms, and he was surrounded by the people that loved him.
1: A grieving mother tracks down her baby's donated organs.
0: I used to think the universe treated people the way it should, and now I don't really believe
1: that. And she finds solace in the most unexpected places. There are kind people in the world, and science and medicine has something to do with that. Gray's donation on the next radio lab. Join us Saturday at noon
0: on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are talking with historian Gregory Prince. His book is Leonard Arrington and the Writing of Mormon History. And this book is the winner of the Evans Biography Award from Utah State University. This was a very big step. right? 1972. Leonard Arrington, professional historian, is appointed church historian. How did, how did that uh, come about, what were yes. church leaders? Now, let
1: me put a little asterisk here. there. Yeah. A- and it wasn't until I was rather deep into researching his life that it dawned on me what should I should have known up front, and that is, in a way, he wasn't a professional historian because he had a Ph.D. in economics.
0: That's and, right, economist, yeah.
1: And that turned out to work against him because when he arrived at Utah State University, he joined the faculty of the Department of Economics. One of his mentors was a historian on campus who shaped his ability to write readable Mormon history and had a major role in making Great Basin Kingdom what it is. If you compare the book to the dissertation from which it was derived, there's night and day difference, and that was primarily because of George Ellsworth and his mentorship. But there were jealousies there because Leonard was a quickly ascending star, and Largely because of George Ellsworth, Leonard was never allowed to teach a class in history in the 26 years he was at the Utah State University faculty. Wow. And I think that had a lot to do with his deciding, I'm going to be inclusive rather than exclusive. Nonetheless, 1972 marked the culmination of a process that had begun the year earlier. The ODS Church, then under the de facto leadership of Harold B. Lee, who was a counselor in the First Presidency, but was the de facto president because Joseph Fielding Smith was in his mid-90s and in failing health, Lee had long seen the need to modernize the bureaucracy. The hierarchical structure of Mormonism had sprouted up in silos over many decades And those silos, in the form of auxiliary organizations, had become kingdoms unto themselves. And they basically went forward independently. When a church gets to be over a million people, that becomes very cumbersome, if not uh, impossible to manage at that point. So Lee commissioned an Eastern consulting firm uh, and asked them to come and look at the church structure from top to bottom and make strategic recommendations about a reorganization. They did that, and one of their recommendations was you have to professionalize the church historian's office. For a half-century prior to that, the church historian had been Joseph Fielding Smith, who now was the church president. He had no training in historiography. He did not have a college degree. And the people who worked in the church historian's office were either family or friends. And they had no formal training in it. That's just the way things had been done for a half-century. So Leonard's call as church historian and the professionalization of the historical department was part of this broader effort to modernize the entire structure of the Mormon bureaucracy. I think if it had focused just on history, Leonard may not have made the cut because he would have become a focal point. Think of it like an omnibus bill in the Congress in the days when Congress could still pass bills where it's an up-or-down vote on everything. And I think that's probably what happened here, that the professionalization of the church historian's office into the church historical department was part of this overall restructuring and the Quorum of the Twelve unanimously approved the whole thing. But they didn't focus on Leonard. If they had really paid attention to his track record, he'd never made any secret of where he stood on how you evaluate data. In his preface to Great Basin Kingdom, he gives a remarkably insightful and candid explanation of the challenge that this book will be both to the Mormon reader— Who expects to see God behind every bush, and the non-Mormon reader who won't allow for there to be inspiration in any religious tradition's history? It was there, but they hadn't read it, and so I think they were shocked later on when they shouldn't have been at the direction that
0: he took the writing of Mormon history. Mm. Let me follow up on on that direction. What um, what what were the biggest changes? from from from
1: before. The biggest changes were that you started with the data and then wrote the history. Mm. In the past, you started with the dogma and then used a selective reading of history to prop up the dogma. That's a big, big change. Mm-hmm. Now, what it actually produced, especially if you look at it in hindsight, was so benign that you have to scratch your head and say, what's the fuss? But it was a big fuss because... It represented a transition. It wasn't the specifics of the story that Leonard and his co-historians were writing. It was the fact that, number one, we now were moving towards a data-based writing of history, and number two, we had transferred the writing of the story from the ecclesiastical arm of the church to a new professional arm of the church. And it's hard to say in retrospect which of those two was more threatening to the senior apostles who eventually were able to bring down the history division, which was Leonard's group within the larger historical department, dismantle it, and send the historians packing.
0: Yeah. So this, the, the, so Leonard Arrington was in for what, around 10 years. It was the early 80s that this was dismantled, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. You, you have to put an asterisk on that one, too, because... At the time, it wasn't clear, even to him, when he was no longer acting as church historian. We know the start date. It was 1972. He eventually wrote a letter to the first presidency, I believe it was 1982, and said, uh, you know, with all of this reorganization, the dismantling and such, what's my status as church historian? And they actually wrote back and said, well, um, we will make your release retroactive by two years. Mm. So you could say eight years, you could say ten years, and justify either one of those. Mm,
0: Right. So this tension's always there, uh, you know, it slides one way or the other, I guess depending who's in the church leadership and and, and what's happening, right? I think the tension was
1: probably not there for the first couple of years Mm. simply because it took a while to ramp things up and to write anything that anybody could react to. Plus, for the first year that Leonard was church historian— he had a an unquestioned patron in Harold B. Lee who became the church president shortly after Leonard became the church historian. I think it was just two months later. While Lee was alive, nobody would have questioned him on anything. He was a very powerful leader, and even for years prior to his becoming president, people would look to him because they knew he would be sitting in the president's chair. They also assumed that he would be sitting in that chair for a long time. He was in his mid-70s when he became church president. In a national context, that sounds like being an old man. In a Mormon context, that's just a kid. Uh, We're not likely to see another church president who becomes president before his 80th birthday. Mm -hmm. So people assumed that we would have Harold B. Lee as church president for perhaps 20 years, Mm -hmm. and instead we had him for a year and a half. He died very suddenly, and with his death, Leonard lost his primary patron. But I don't think he realized at that time the implications of that.
0: Yeah, well, there's a, there's a, I guess a personal, I don't know, struggle. There's a, there's personal decisions you have to make as a, because Arrington is a member of the church. He's a historian. Um. And when we do, maybe we could move it forward to the, to the nineties, you have the the September sixth. He he knows some of these people. He's he's mentored uh, some of these people. What how did he deal with with that? This is uh, in in the space of about a month. Um, five or uh, academics or uh, historians are excommunicated. Ones disfellowshipped.
1: Yes, yes. He was both grieved at this and personally threatened by it. Grieved because, as you say, some of these people he had known very closely. Levina Fielding Anderson was one, and she had written an unpublished three-volume biography of Leonard that he had commissioned. So he knew her and she knew him very well. And to see the process by which she was excommunicated was just deeply injurious to him on a very personal level. But he also began to worry, am I next on the list? That's almost incomprehensible to anybody who knew Leonard because one characterization I think people would agree with, this man was something between Santa Claus and a teddy bear, a persona that you could not do anything but like or adore. And the idea that he would be at risk of losing his church membership merely for having written the truth is almost unconscionable, almost unbelievable to today's mind. But he remarked to several people, because he was then in the process of writing a very fine autobiography, I fear that I will be next, that I will be excommunicated for having written this biography. That's an astounding statement, but I think it really emphasizes how... How charged the atmosphere was at that time! The excommunication of those six, or those five people, the disfellowshipment of the sixth, sent a shock wave through the entire Mormon scholarly community. It really took out two generations of scholars, and had a dampering effect on the third. The third is the older scholars who had established their reputation tended to gravitate towards safer topics. The middle ground, which was the young untenured scholars, to a large extent saw the handwriting on the wall and shifted their focus and left the field. And then the first group, the youngest group, the ones who were undergraduate and graduate students, to a large extent saw that there was no future for them and they shifted out of the field. So there was a huge void in the writing of Mormon history that persisted for well over a decade as a result
0: of the shock wave that the September 6 caused hmm. where are we do you think today what uh, it's uh, is there always going to be that that tension where where are church officials do you think and where where is the where are the scholars inside the church in one sense we've come full circle and the
1: publications that the church now is producing, the Joseph Smith Papers being one, but I think even more remarkably, uh, the Massacre at Mountain Meadows, which was written by three church employees and had substantial church support in terms of logistics and money along the way, uh, show how far we have come since the darkest days, post what Leonard and others had called Camelot. Those would have been unimaginable I think for Leonard and for his co-workers and yet here we are and if you speak today either to the historians who wrote them or to the ecclesiastical officers who were in the history department as they were being written they would acknowledge number one that indeed times have changed and number two that in the case particularly the Mountain Meadows Massacre book that they built on the shoulders of Juanita Brooks Mm -hmm. and that in itself would have been an astounding admission 20 years earlier now that said within any religious tradition there is always going to be tension between the ecclesiastical and the scholarly it's just the nature of the beast but we see that even in the secular world i've spent as i said nearly 50 years as an experimental biologist and i was surprised and continue to be surprised, surprised from a very early stage of my career, how unpliable many scientists are. That they seem to spend the years pre-tenure in staking out their turf and then the rest of their careers defending that turf. Hmm. So they are no more willing to accept new paradigms in science then organized religion tends to be to ac- accept new paradigms in religion. It's built in; it's going to be there, but it certainly is way, way diminished from what it was in the post-Camelot years.
0: Hmm. And uh, do you think Errington and the, the others who followed him um, had they were part of that part part of moving uh, the church in the in that direction? Took took some time, or? Or was this the product of his times that we've arrived at now? They pushed the needle as far as they could
1: and then were forced to retreat. Uh, Leonard was, in in a sense, was a broken man when he was released as church historian. But there were two aspects to that. One was the violence that that did to his career and to his own self-esteem. The other was that almost within a couple of months of that, his wife had died. She had a long decline in health, and in the spring of 1982, just shortly before the final packing up of his bags in Salt Lake City and the move down to Provo, she died. So it it was just a double tragedy for him, and he never really recovered from it. Uh, If you look at his diaries, it just cut the heart out of them. Whereas they had been voluminous and introspective before that, after that, they consisted largely of his weekly letters to his children that he wrote religiously, and a scrapbook of where he went and what he saw.
0: Hmm. Just like to follow up before I move on to a couple of the topics on on uh, this tension that exists in in I guess uh, all institutions, um, you know particularly uh, intense in some religions. Um, you said earlier that uh, your feeling was that there there's a connection between following truth and faith and that if you don't follow the historical truth, that can be damaging to faith, Kind of the opposite of, of, of what uh, some attitudes are and particularly uh, as as it uh, relates to one of the darkest chapters in church history, Mountain Meadows massacre. It's, there's been a whole shift in this throwing open of the doors from the perspective uh, of the church and I, I I don't know from your perspective, on the church's perspective, accepting your premise that it's better for the faith of the members to have all of the truth known? Yes, it is,
1: but that's uh, a bumpy road to go down, but it's an essential road to go down. Even in earlier years, when data weren't as available as they are now, the confrontation of a person of faith whose faith was based on dogma rather than data who now is confronting data, was uncomfortable, unsettling, sometimes devastating. And certainly the record is filled with people who bailed from their faith because they suddenly were confronted with an inconvenient truth, and they had no preparation when that confrontation happened. What has happened with the evolution of the internet is that that whole process has been accelerated that not only are the data available, but they are available to people who don't want to see them. If you are at all on the Internet, it's almost impossible as a Latter-day Saint to avoid data points that are going to be calling into question some of the things you thought you knew. And this was behind the Church's eventual decision to prepare essays that would confront head-on the most troublesome questions, historical or theological, that were confronting members. These questions were not new. The data that were confronting members were not new. What was new was the Internet caused that collision to happen more and more frequently. And the people who turned out to be at highest risk in this process were the Orthodox, because to them all of this was not only brand new, they had no context in which to place it safely because they had been taught that there was only one way of, of understanding the story of their religion and that any cracks in that facade would indicate that the whole thing was false. That false dichotomy had been set up and repeated for years and years and years. So these people, when they suddenly confront this information on the internet and decide, well, gee, that's probably false, but maybe I ought to just dig down a little bit and find out that, in fact, the quotations that were being used were verifiable. They didn't know what to grab on, and many of them were so disillusioned that they just walked away. So those essays were a direct response to that hemorrhage that continues to this day But the hope was that the hemorrhage would at least lessen a little bit. When I spoke to uh, one of the general authorities shortly before the first of those essays was posted, which I think was in late 2013, he said, we hope to have the first of those posted within a few weeks because they're going in front of the Quorum of the Twelve for final approval. And I said, congratulations, Now, how are you going to deploy them? And he said, yeah, tell me, because he understood that the same essays that would help one group could imperil another group. And how do you get that message to both of those constituencies in a way that it helps rather than hurts them? And the answer is only with great difficulty and maybe not at all. So that's a continuing dilemma. How do we bring an entire church membership up to speed so that it is—so that the data that are out there coincide with their own worldview of their own religion. It's an extremely difficult question, um, and the progress towards resolution of that is going to be incremental and painful.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Gregory Prince— He is a scientific researcher and historian. He earned his graduate degrees in dentistry and pathology at UCLA. He then pursued a four-decade career in pediatric infectious disease research. His love of history led him to write uh, several books, including the award-winning David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, which he co-authored with William Robert Wright. His latest book is Leonard Arrington and the Writing of Mormon History which is the winner of the uh, 2017 Evans Biography Award, which is administered by the Utah State University Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, a program and research area in USU's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. In our last segment coming up following the break with Gregory Prince, we'll talk about a recent talk that uh, Dr. Prince gave, Science versus Dogma, Biology Challenges the LDS Paradigm. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at UtahHumanities.org. You're listening to AXIS Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Gregory Prince, author of several books. The most recent of those is titled Leonard Arrington and the Writing of Mormon History. And Gregory Prince is the 2017 winner of the Evans Biography Award from uh, Utah State University, and uh, we uh, have now reached our last segment with uh, Gregory Prince. This might be a good uh, place to to bring uh, this in. You gave a lecture, the Obert C. and Grace A. Tanner Humanities uh, Lecture Center presented lecture, the Sterling M. McMurrin. Uh, uh, lecture. We could have a whole conversation about Sterling McMurrin, I guess, on, on another occasion. Um, but uh, you you gave uh, this lecture at uh, University of Utah, for University of Utah, uh, at the Salt Lake City Public Library just this week. Science versus dogma. Biology challenges the LDS uh, paradigm. What were you talking about there?
1: The other two words to put on the end of that title are of homosexuality. Hmm. I first became really sensitized about this issue in the immediate aftermath of the Prop 8 election in 2008. This was the same election where Barack Obama was elected president, but the social issue of homosexuality was in the forefront for California voters. Proposition 8 was a constitutional amendment for the state constitution that defined marriage as being between one man and one woman. It was the attempt to make illegal on a permanent basis same-sex marriage within the state of California. Other states had already legalized it, but California, being a bellwether of things in general, was looked upon by the church as being a strategic thing. And so they made the decision to pour enormous assets into the fight to approve Prop 8. And even though the initiative had been trailing in the polls running up to the election, in the last few weeks that flipped and it won by about four percentage points. That sent a shockwave throughout the country because even though there was not a majority of the country at that time that approved a same-sex marriage, the idea of embedding in a state constitution a prohibition to it was a bit too much for a lot of people. And it really marked a high-water mark for the anti-marriage equality movement and most of the events subsequent to that, which <clears throat> culminated in 2015 in the Supreme Court decision of Obergefell v. Hodges that made marriage equality the law of the land— Everything moved in that direction post-Prop 8. So a week and a half after that election, I got a phone call from Helen Whitney, who had become a very close friend because I'd worked with her on her magnificent PBS documentary called The Mormons that had been broadcast in 2007, just a year earlier. A four-hour documentary that I think will remain a classic examination of the Mormon religion. But she said, Andrew Solomon is one of my dearest friends. Now, Andrew Solomon is a brilliant writer. He writes for The New Yorker. He's often confused with Andrew Sullivan, who writes for The Atlantic. She said, he's one of my closest friends, and he has really come after me for having had anything nice to say in my documentary about this evil church, Andrew's words. Can you help me? So over the next year, through email initially and then through a couple of visits personally when I went up to New York City, um, we got the temperature down and started to have a real dialogue. Eventually, he granted me an interview that was published in Dialogue where he talked not only about his personal history of coming out as a gay man, but then about where he viewed the LDS Church and its generally homophobic stance. The process of getting to know Andrew and listening to him was really the initiation of this book. I didn't realize it at the time, but that's when I started— to develop empathy for this whole issue of homosexuality. I have a gay sister. It's not that this was something new to me, but I'd never gotten into the nuances of it. And then other events that happened subsequently of people that I would be introduced to almost serendipitously who turned out to be national figures in LGBT circles... Uh, connections with the LDS hierarchy that happened almost serendipitously, it gradually became apparent that I might be able to add some value to the discussion about what was going on within the Mormon Church on LGBT issues and how that might be viewed in the context of the national discussion. So that was a process that began in 2008 uh, it ended late last year when I finished a manuscript that's now under editorial review at the University of Utah Press, which is the same press that published my other two books.
0: So, the uh, science versus dogma. Um, do you think that paradigm will change? Do you yes. Think, the LDS paradigm. You think it? Well, uh, whether or... the LDS
1: paradigm okay. changes, the scientific paradigm has already changed.
0: Right. The scientific paradigm has. Um, so, on on the on the church side, do you think that's? Will change We've seen some backing away from the prior paradigm.
1: Now, if you go back not even a few decades, everybody knew that homosexuality was just a choice, and it was a bad choice, and so unchoose it. That was the common wisdom. Now, there weren't data to back that up, but nobody in the larger context was really questioning that. Even many gays assumed that that was correct and it just put them through hell and sometimes resulted in them taking their own lives because they could not deal with that idea that this was just an evil choice. Uh, So it, it was a gradual process whereby science began to speak to this issue. There still is no objective biomarker for homosexuality. In part, that's because homosexuality is not a monolith. It's not even a spectrum. In the late 1940s, Alfred Kinsey published uh, Sexuality in the Human Male. It was a landmark book because really the first time that anybody had taken a scholarly approach towards the study of sex. It was verboten before that. But what he did was to place human sexuality on a linear scale. And he said, if you're a zero, that means you're completely heterosexual. If you're a six, you're completely homosexual. And if you're a three, you're bisexual. That moved the field forward a little bit because at least it made some sense out of it where there had been none previously. But in the long term, it was a disservice for two reasons. One is that it's not linear. Think of it as a multidimensional array. Think of it as a galaxy of stars where you would have clusters separated by space and sometimes individual stars here and there. That's how complex it is. The other disservice of Kinsey's work was that he either ignored or didn't even realize the flip side of the coin. What he was concentrating on was sexual identity. To whom am I sexually attracted? The other side of that is gender identity. How do I identify regardless of my genitalia? If those match my personal identification, then I'm called cisgender. If they don't match, then I'm transgender. And this whole issue of transgender, which is the T of the LGBT world, uh, lags far behind the others in terms of what biology has to say about it and how society has responded to it. But the cumulative effect of scientific research is that more and more we see that all of the flavors of homosexuality represent biological imprints, prenatal, and once the fetal brain is imprinted and sexuality is in the brain, not the genitalia, then that's it. It's indelible, it's permanent, it's unchangeable. And that's the paradigm to which the world is eventually going to have to move because that's where biology is going. Organized religions are moving in that direction with great difficulty or, in some cases, not at all. The LDS Church is somewhere in the middle there in that if you compare it to evangelical Protestantism, the fact that we send openly gay men and women on full-time proselytizing missions would be unthinkable in those other traditions as it would have been unthinkable within Mormonism in the Spencer Kimball years. So we have made some progress. We have had church leaders shift from saying this is a choice and it is not biological to them saying biology might be part of this, but we really don't know what the cause is. That's a significant shift. It's not embracing biology yet, but at least it's distancing themselves from their prior paradigm, which was, it's just behavioral, mm. so behave differently.
0: Mm. I want to just have a, a few minutes left. I want to uh, return to Arrington and uh, have you talk a little bit about, um, of course, Arrington spent many years at USU. Um, there's, there's now an Arrington chair, endowed chair. Um, to which the LDS Church donated a uh, million dollars, I, I believe. Yes. What do you think, uh, Arrington would have thought of a Arrington endowed chair? Well, he probably would have been embarrassed because he never tried to call
1: attention to himself. Uh, he was quite a humble man, and he felt that what he really wanted to do was just write good history, uh, and he assumed that the Lord would understand, and that's all that mattered. I think he'd be honored, but I think he'd probably be a little embarrassed at Mm -hmm. the same time. The Arrington chair was the first of what are now several endowed chairs of Mormon studies across the country. There's one here. There's one at Claremont University. There's one at University of Virginia. I was at the council meeting in Charlottesville last Saturday. Um, And all three of these, plus some others that are now being developed in other universities, I think signal strongly that Mormon studies have arrived and are here to stay and are not distant relatives within academe anymore. For many years, if you were doing a master's or particularly a doctoral dissertation at a university outside the state of Utah and you wanted to do it on a Mormon topic, you wouldn't be able to get approval from your doctorate committee because they felt this was not a significant area of graduate study. You can actually go into a database, it's called ProQuest, that has virtually all of the doctoral dissertations published in the United States over the last century. And if you do some search terms in there, you'll see that if you graph the number of dissertations that are now being done on doctoral topics, it's gone up exponentially in the past 20 years. So what we see with the Arrington chair at Utah State is really a vanguard moment that that started a new initiative, not only of encouraging graduate studies, but now formalizing it in the name of an endowed chair so that it becomes institutionalized. Mm. That's a huge step forward. And it's a great honor uh, to the legacy of Leonard
0: Arrington that the first of those chairs bears his name. Mm. USU, of course, has many uh, uh, connections. Uh, The the Arrington Papers, I think, are here in the USU. Um, they almost had to build a new building to accommodate. Archives. Yeah. yeah he, he was
1: he was a background, as you say, in the uh, in Over the 300 yeah. linear feet comprise yeah. his wow. papers. It, <laughs> it may be their most important manuscript collection. Certainly, it's one of the most important in Mormon history.
0: Yeah. Now, Arrington was the first winner of the Evans Biography Award, and uh, now you're the latest winner uh, for a biography of him. Uh, he won the award for uh, Brigham Young American Moses, yes.
1: right? Yes, and—, and
0: the symmetry on this rather baffles me, but I'm honored. I wonder if you could talk just at the end here um, about the uh, two seminal works, uh, The Great Basin Kingdom. This is a very important work. It's uh, economic in focus. Um, he's, he, he's an economist. Um, why is Great Basin Kingdom, why does it still hold up, why, why so seminal? Because of the application of a data-based approach.
1: If you look at the dissertation that he wrote, it's really dry and it's really packed with data. So what George Ellsworth succeeded in helping Leonard to do was to reduce that to something that's readable. But nonetheless, the essence of Great Basin Kingdom is it's a data-driven approach to the telling of the Mormon story. The data in this case are mostly economics data, but it turns out that in the establishment of the Great Basin Kingdom over a half century, that economics may have been the most important factor driving what happened. They had to come out here and somehow survive. And if you're going to survive, then that becomes an economic story. Hmm. So it was not only his application of data to the telling of history, but the history, that epoch of history that he chose, was so transformational so important to the overall saga of mormonism that it remains as a classic work because it took such an important topic there have been subsequent work by leonard and others that were well written well researched but they weren't terribly important topics and so they're a flash in the pan and then they fade and 10 or 20 years later nobody talks about them anymore not the case with Great Basin Kingdom. Even his other works, you mention uh, the Brigham Young biography for which he got the first Evans Award. Uh, there have been other Brigham Young biographies since then that have moved the needle further, and so the importance of American Moses has receded along the way. And people don't talk as much about that book anymore as they used to not so for Great Basin Kingdom. It still is in the forefront. It's a classic. It's required reading for many students who are in this area. And I think it will remain that for a long time to come. When you consider that it was published in the 1950s, that's a remarkable track record. Hmm. Uh, let's conclude with legacy. What's what's Arrington's legacy? I think that his most lasting legacy is the welcoming of people of all stripes into the Mormon history community. He had direct mentorship of mentorship of many people who got academic degrees either in Mormon studies of one type or another or related to it. But he also welcomed the rank amateur, such as myself, gave them a home, gave them encouragement, in many cases gave them data. Many, many stories as I was interviewing people for the book where they would say, I would go into Leonard and say, I have an interest in this topic, and he would pull a folder out of his file and give it to me and say, it's important, go do it. Hmm. Not only do you still have many of those people around writing history as a direct result of Leonard's influence, but that attitude of inclusiveness, of welcoming to the amateur continues. You see it in the Mormon History Association, which is defined only by your willingness To be there, not by professional credentials, whereas most professional societies, particularly in the sciences, take great pains to draw boundaries around them to keep the outsiders out. So that ripple effect of his influence of inclusiveness has continued well beyond his death, and I don't see an end point to that. I think that's his most important legacy, and we're going to see the beneficial effects of it
0: probably for the rest of our lives. Good place to end the conversation. We've been talking with Gregory Prince. He's author of Leonard Arrington and the Writing of Mormon History, which is the winner of the latest um, Evans Biography Award, which is administered uh, by the Utah State University's Mountain West Center for Regional Studies in the USU College of Humanities and uh, Social Sciences. So congratulations again, and thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Pleasure to be back here again. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. thanks to uh, Dr. Prince, and uh, thanks uh, to the good folks at the uh, Mountain West uh, Center for Regional uh, Studies at USU. Uh, Coming up on Monday, we'll have uh, our monthly episode in the USU's Year of the Arts. And we'll be talking with artist Sam Vernon. Her installations combine Xerox drawings, photographs, paintings, and sculptural components in an exploration of personal narrative and identity. That's coming on Monday. Hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.